the surgery part was really the easy part. The hard part was maintaining the airway and getting this baby off a ventilator and, and maintaining IV access, right? Because IV access, can't, you can't give drugs, you can't do anything without IV access. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon, and I'm joined today by pediatric surgeon, Dr. Colonel John Horton. Dr. Horton is a general surgeon and pediatric surgeon with his education coming from the Uniformed Services University, his general surgery residency through the military at William Beaumont Army Medical Center, and civilian training for pediatric surgery at Oregon Health Science University. He has four deployments to Afghanistan, and in this discussion, we are going to speak about the issue of pediatric trauma, which is one of the modules in the military clinical readiness curriculum available at apps.facs.org forward slash military clinical readiness curriculum. You can see more on the curriculum at this website and find out more about Dr. John Horton at wardocspodcast.com. On this episode of Wardocs, we're pleased to have Colonel Dr. John Horton, the Chief of Pediatric Surgery at Madigan Army Medical Center and Deputy Consultant to the U.S. Army Surgeon General for General Surgery. John, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. We're here to discuss the military-specific curriculum that the American College of Surgeons has developed along with the Excelsior Surgical Society and the Uniformed Services University. The module we're going to discuss is Pediatric Trauma Module, but let's start by getting a little bit of your background. I know that you're an expert in pediatric surgery as you trained me in my tree resident year at Madigan, but I want to hear a little bit about your background. So your undergraduate is from Southern Methodist University and your medical school is from the Uniformed Services University. Tell us what brought you to the Army and medicine, ultimately a career in surgery. So I always had a fondness for the military. My dad was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. He learned to fly out of Fort Rucker in the mid-60s. And as I was going through high school, I had always thought that I probably wanted to join the military and decided to take an ROTC scholarship. Simultaneously, I also I was very interested in medicine and kind of always planned to pursue a career in medicine. And little did I know that the Army and medicine would be, a, would be a good match. So you completed your general surgery residency at William Beaumont in El Paso and also a pediatric surgery fellowship at Oregon Health Science University, OHSU. What sparked your interest in pediatric surgery? Yeah, I think pediatric surgery, everybody will tell you who's interested in pediatric surgery. It's, it's really the last bastion of general surgery in the field. We get to do all sorts of Great cases on children as small as, my smallest case was a 300 gram baby, all the way up to adult size. I'm proud to hold the record for the largest appendectomy at Tacoma General. He weighed over 560 pounds. So a wide range there. We get to do cases in the chest, cases in the abdomen, cancer cases, reconstructive stuff. And kind of most importantly, the patients just do great, right? as opposed to like surgical oncologists who are drawn to that ultra-challenging liver resection or pancreas resection, those patients don't tend to do that well, even if you do a fantastic job with their Whipple, right? But 
for pediatric surgery, you reconstruct a baby's esophagus and they went from having an unsurvivable condition to, to maybe not a totally normal life all the time, but a very good, good life and a long lifespan. So it's not just you do a, a really interesting case, but then they have a five-year survival of 20%. They, they tend to do well and live long lives. Well, I can remember vividly from my general surgery residency that there were times where you and I were called to the delivery suite of uh, a baby being born. And I'll tell you that nothing really created more anxiety in my residency than having to think about potentially doing surgery on a patient who was just born. I mean, like day of life um, surgery. As a vascular surgeon, I did receive training and treating children as part of my fellowship, and vascular surgeons occasionally consult on pediatric patients. That being said, this is not what I would consider my routine comfort zone, and the military-specific curriculum for the pediatric trauma care actually begins with military practitioners are often forced to practice outside of their scope of comfort. This is particularly the case for pediatric trauma from my perspective. Tell us what you think and find unique about pediatric care in the deployed environment and why do you think it creates so much anxiety when people have to consider doing consults or procedures on pediatric patients? Downrange, you can expect to see patients of all sizes and ages. I think seeing a child downrange might evoke a sense of maybe there might be some guilt on our part that we might feel, even if an American wasn't the one who caused the casualty, we still feel guilty that Maybe the conflict is partly due to our country and that we have some responsibility in this. So that certainly maybe plays into it. But I think the biggest thing is just everybody feels like they have to be at the top of their game with children and they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to do the wrong thing, make the wrong decision when it comes to children. Honestly, I would say most most good surgeons probably know the right things to do with children. And I think our residency programs prepare our surgeons pretty well for, for dealing with the pediatric patients we might run into downrange. So the listeners may be interested, if they went to the military-specific curriculum, to find out that 7% of U.S. military hospital admissions during the recent conflicts were on pediatric patients for trauma. When pediatric patients present for trauma, take me through your approach to their care. So I think first thing is just as you walk into the room, into the trauma bay, what do they look like? How are they interacting with their environment? A, a three-year-old who, who is kind of n- normal neurologically, they should be very upset by you taking off all their clothes and poking and prodding them. They shouldn't be sitting docile or laying docile and not, not reacting to all these people. They should be crying. They should be upset. That's what I would expect. So you go through the ABCs just like you would in kind of a standard ATLS trauma protocol or I guess I should say CAB, right? We want to make sure we control hemorrhage, which same thing downrange, control hemorrhage first. Um, Airway, uh, make sure they don't have any pneumothoraces, and then do a disability exam. Now, I think GCS can be challenging on any child, but particularly a child downrange, it's going to be very difficult to get them to answer questions. Language is going to be a problem. Widen your downrange if you can ever have an interpreter in the room as you're trying to talk with kids. That would be most helpful. 
and then secondary survey just as any other trauma assessment. Yeah, I remember you giving that advice to me as a resident about just treat the small kid like you would an adult. They're just smaller. But there are some unique aspects to pediatric care, including the resuscitation, their vital signs, the neurologic assessment, which you mentioned. Give me some critical differences that would be important for providers to understand after they would go through the military-specific curriculum in regards to pediatric trauma. Right. So I think some of the key differences, like you said, would be fluid resuscitation. I think with any trauma where blood loss is a major factor, you want to be resuscitating with blood products. But you got to keep in mind that we're resuscitating on a weight-based type formula. So for children, you would, you would give blood at 10 milliliters per kilogram or 20 milliliters per kilogram. You can easily over-resuscitate them if you're not keeping track of these things. So as they come through the door, you want to try to get an estimate of their weight. Downrange, that's going to be very difficult to do, right? One, you're not going to be able to talk to them and ask them how much they weigh. And that probably not really a statistic that they are going to be all that familiar with. They don't weigh themselves all that often. So a Breslow tape and, and estimating their weight with that Breslow tape, probably erring on the lighter side a little bit because the Breslow tape is supposedly, it's calibrated for American-style children. So I would err on kind of a lower end of that weight estimation. Other things, I guess, to consider would just be their vital signs. A child's vital signs you would expect them to be tachycardic if they're very anxious. And it's tough to tell whether this tachycardia is from anxiety or whether it's from blood loss. And you're going to have to make a judgment call about that. And like I said earlier, if you walk into the trauma bay and the child's not really responding, but they have a heart rate of 160, I would kind of take that as a heart rate due to blood loss. But if it's a child that's a three-year-old that's screaming and doesn't have any obvious blood loss, but maybe some bruising on the abdomen and they have a heart rate of 140, I might chalk that up more to anxiety. But you're going to do your full assessment and hopefully get this figured out shortly anyway. Well, I certainly learned something to use the lighter side of the Breslow tape. I mean, that makes perfect sense because knowing what the children that I've seen in deployed settings, they are certainly much thinner than the average American child of the same age. So one of the aspects of the military-specific curriculum is a quiz that asks for each module, but in the pediatric trauma one, it says, during the most recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, what is the most common injury pattern that was seen in pediatric patients? And the answer is explosive and blast-related trauma. I personally am glad that I've never had to encounter this in a pediatric patient, but I may in the future, since I'm still on active duty, What advice would you give me regarding caring for pediatric patients with blast and explosive-related trauma? I think this is going to be super challenging because these patients could could potentially have very destructive injuries, but I think you're not going to be, you really can't afford to try to be over-conservative with with your surgical debridement. If, if, If they need an amputation, it seems terrible, but you're doing that to save their life. I think these sort of decisions are really hard to make. Some things, the other things I think maybe to consider that their abdominal walls are not typically as thick. They're not going to disperse the energy of the whatever created the blast injury. 
you may have to you may have to have a lower threshold for exploring them than you would an adult. When a child, if you had a like a pellet gun in a child, that'll pierce their abdominal wall and cause a hollow viscous injury. Like I don't know about you, but me, I don't think many pellet guns are going to make it through my abdominal wall. And similar with some of these blast injuries, you get a small fragment that maybe in a, a thick adult male may not pierce the abdominal wall. In a child, it may go through and through. So a bowel injury or some other intra-abdominal injury might be more likely in their case. So that's one of the unique aspects of deployed medicine as well, is we don't have as much imaging capabilities as they have in the United States. You have a child that's injured, I'm guessing, at any hospital you work at in the United States, and you're getting a CT scan if they have a questionable abdominal penetration. When you do a laparotomy or evaluation for the need for laparotomy, take me through a little bit of the steps you think about for pediatric patients aside from the abdominal wall being thin. So I think if it's an injury in a specific part of the abdomen, if it's an upper abdominal injury, start the incision up there. But you're gonna have to make a you're gonna have to make a generous laparotomy incision. It should start above the umbilicus, it should end below it somewhere. You probably don't need a stem to stern type laparotomy incision in a child because you can really get to everything through I'm not saying a small incision but you can get to everything through a smaller incision than you can in an adult just because their abdominal wall is so lax is a lot more flexible I would also say you probably remember from some of your pediatric surgery rotations people doing uh, transverse right upper quadrant incisions that's a common incision we use in ped surgery but I would say for anybody going downrange, I wouldn't recommend doing a transverse incision for trauma in a baby or in a or in a small child. I would just do a midline standard laparotomy, go around the belly button like you always would, explore the abdomen, and you're going to be able to do the exploration pretty quickly probably because they don't have a lot of intra-abdominal fat. You'll be able to see retroperitoneal hematomas very quickly. Things to consider once you're in the abdomen is the bladder. In small children, the bladder really is more of an intra-abdominal organ as opposed to a preperitoneal or retroperitoneal organ. And a really small child, it may be getting in your way, so decompressing that with a Foley would be key. Inspecting the, the diaphragms on both sides is going to be important. The solid organs tend to get pushed a little bit below the rib cage, which makes them a little more susceptible in children to injury than, than that of an adult where the inferior edges of the, of the ribs do a better job to protect, protect adults. But the natural kind of anatomic position of the solid organs, you don't have that kind of overhang that you do in an adult. So Interesting. You had shared with me a video of you taking another surgeon through a pediatric laparotomy and that telecommunication was through FaceTime. I can tell you that if I encounter a situation where I'm performing surgery on an infant or a young child, I'm going to be giving you a call and we're going to be FaceTiming as well. When you have fielded these types of calls for pediatric care, what do you find are the pearls of wisdom that you give? And take us through an example scenario. This particular child, this was probably something that everybody really worries about this small child it was, was an infant just a few weeks old got was brought to their fob 
the abdomen was extremely distended. This is a local national and nobody knew what was going on and there was nobody really to help. I remember getting an x-ray that was like sent to me through WhatsApp maybe and the child clearly had dilated bowel, like surgically dilated bowel. And in a, in a baby, you can't really tell the bowel you're looking at, whether it's colon or small bowel, but you can tell that it's massively dilated. And I suspected that the child had either some kind of incomplete atresia or maybe Hirschsprung's disease, something like that. But if the child had been vomiting, really the only way to temporize the situation would be to do an ostomy when uh, and then maybe you could learn some more information if it was a an atresia or something you could figure that out uh, you wouldn't be able to do anything about Hirschsprung's disease necessarily but at least trying to divert them would be a good first step so it was an air force surgeon i believe who not long out of training but she was well trained and walking her through the procedure she was able to identify what what it seems like was probably an atresia in the kind of terminal ileum area and she was able to bring out an ostomy and really i I think if i'd have been there i would have done exactly what she did very very challenging situation but then the part that probably you or i could could get through the surgery part was really the easy part the hard part was maintaining the airway and getting this baby off a ventilator and and maintaining IV access, right? Because IV access, you can't give drugs, you can't do anything without IV access, and they had a really tough time maintaining IV access. Ultimately, that baby did not survive, but I I think the surgeon did a great job. There were other kind of specialties involved, neonatology and anesthesia, trying to keep the baby alive, but they're really just, if I recall right, there really wasn't a place to send the baby and they, they couldn't they couldn't get the baby off the vent so even though i think surgery was successful there's a lot more to it unfortunately right and i find that even in things that are within my normal skill set that when they come become fairly complex it's really the decision making to take them to the operating room and not the actual surgical procedure itself that i find being the most stressful aspect because you are outside of your comfort zone. Um, Do you find that that's sort of the same thing that happens with you when you have more complex pediatric surgical patients? Oh, for sure. Um, The thing about ped surgery is that there's some things that we do very commonly like appendectomies or inguinal hernias. But really the cases that most of us go into the field for, you really don't do them a lot. We're not like vascular surgery or bariatrics or CT surgery where they have a couple of cases that they do a lot of, right? Like if you're a super busy pediatric surgeon, you maybe do one esophageal atresia a year. You maybe do a couple of atresia cases. You maybe do a couple of Hirschsprung's cases. So I think part of being a pediatric surgeon, you have to be comfortable with the unknown. You got to be comfortable with something that I can't say that I do 50 esophageal atresias a year, right? Nobody can say that. So every time we go in there, every time we operate on a baby for something, it's a case that I can't say I do 100 times a year. So so I feel like I've adapted and I'm comfortable doing things that I'm not, that I don't do every day. But not all, But that isn't the way that it goes with most surgeons, I think. But I think as you go down range and you do 
a couple of things, you're like, wow, I've never done that before. You get a little more comfortable with it, right? And it's not like you're experimenting on patients. There's no better option. You are the best option by far. And I think we we have a very broad skill set and just kind of having some confidence in ourselves and and knowing that we're going to do the best we can and we are far and away the best option for most of these patients. Right, that's exactly right. You're the best option for the patient at the time where they are. What advice would you give for someone who was preparing for deployment and was thinking about the potential stressors of taking care of pediatric trauma patients? Well, not to give a plug for the military-specific curriculum, but I think that's a really good place to start. I'm surprised that I didn't know about this military-specific curriculum longer, but as I discovered it and kind of looked through it, it's really a remarkable product. I'm not sure why, since some requirement that every deployed surgeon has to go through this thing, because I think it's very useful. So number one, I think that's great. The CPGs, the clinical practice guidelines put out by JTS, they're a must. You got to either get them on your phone or print them out and put them in a binder and uh, take those with you downrange, right? You should review those continuously. I think being a busy surgeon is the best thing you can do to prepare yourself and busy in whatever field you do. Try to maintain your skills and continue to do complex cases and push your boundaries to the point that's safe for you and the patients. But I think the best way for us to prepare for deployment is to is to be competent and busy surgeons here. John, thanks a lot for talking us through the pediatric trauma section of the military-specific curriculum. I really appreciate your friendship, and thank you for your service to our country. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.